I don't know how your spiritual journey goes from time to time. Um, uh, in mine, there are seasons which feel very vibrant and also some that feel very sad. And it's not long now since I've been through what's felt like a, a very sad season. I got to the beginning of this new year and found that I wanted to cry on many an occasion. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why I wanted to cry. There was just a, a deep sadness within me. And some of this passage or these passages, I think, explain uh, the reasons behind that. And I've had quite a journey these last few weeks, and I'd like to take you uh, through some of that, if I may, as we look at the passages. The first passage, Isaiah 61, is, is an extraordinary manifesto. It sums up the whole of God's uh, kingdom on earth, which is the thing Jesus talks about, and his church, which will last for eternity. His kingdom on earth and his church that will last for eternity. The first half is what Jesus reads out in Luke 4, and it explains the kingdom of God principle. And we've heard some of it preached on these last two weeks. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. In other words, if you want to be part of God's kingdom, you have to have the Holy Spirit on you. And friends, can I, can I ask if you know that you have the Holy Spirit on you? If you were to look in on yourself, uh, St. Paul asks this in one of his letters. He says, examine yourself. I trust that you know you have the Holy Spirit. Do, do you know you have the Holy Spirit in you? It's the first sort of diagnostic question of have you come into Jesus' kingdom? Do you know you have the Spirit on you? Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And what does anointing mean? It means it's sort of, he's drenched me. <laughs> he's put oil on me as a sign of something. And what was the sign for? The sign here is firstly to proclaim good news to the poor. Nicola was speaking on that here last week, wasn't she? Something of the message of Jesus would always take you to those who are in need, who are in trouble, who are in difficulty. There's something about hanging out with Jesus that takes you to the margins, takes you to those who have nothing, to those who have the least. It's proclaim good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. Maybe like I had this year, you've had moments where you've wanted to cry or weep. Do you know there are, there are some people who don't let themselves cry? I was with a lady today who, uh, last week, who was describing her father at the death of his wife after 60 years of marriage. And he hadn't ever allowed himself to cry. And he had two years of depression as a result. He came from that generation that wasn't allowed to cry. The war fighters, the heroes of old. He never cried and uh, live with depression because he couldn't mourn. But Jesus comes to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. It's okay to be broken, especially if you know someone who's a good sower. <laughs> and to proclaim freedom for the captives. We'll hear in future weeks that he also releases darkness um, prisoners and proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah 61 hinges around um, verse 2, and we'll hear more on that later this term, the day of vengeance of our God. And that is the day that Jesus hung on a cross when the full vengeance of God against sin and everything wrong in the world was met in full. 
And the outcome of it is the rest of Isaiah 61, as Ollie read it. It provides for those who grieve, bestows crowns of beauty instead of ashes, joy instead of mourning, praise instead of despair, makes people into oaks of righteousness, and people who can rebuild the ancient ruins. It's a wonderful journey Jesus invites us to go on. He says, would you come with me on? Of freedom and healing and good news. But this kingdom of his is a contested kingdom. We've prayed already with uh, young Joseph at the beginning of the service. Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And 2,000 years after Jesus walked around, we're still being invited to pray this prayer to a God who has absolute power and yet is choosing not to absolutely exercise his absolute power now. So you and I live in a contested space where God's kingdom, with all the beauty that we've read about in Isaiah, should be coming on earth and is coming on earth all the time. And yet there is a battle going on. And many of us remain gripped in a sort of prison, like the man in the second story that we had read to us here today. Let's have a quick look at that on Luke 4, 31 through 37. Jesus goes down to this place called Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and as was his habit, he sat down on the Sabbath and taught the people. He was a regular at synagogue worship. They were amazed at his teaching, his words of God authority. And yet there's a man who comes into the synagogue, as into our congregation today, who is gripped uh, by a demon. Possessed is a bad translation of the Greek word. It should just say demonized. There's no such thing as demon possession per se in the scripture, but influenced in a negative way by a demonic force such that it was controlling him. An impure spirit, he cries out at the top of his voice, go away, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus just looks at this impure force, doesn't do any of the rubbish in films like The Exorcism, <laughs> Power of Christ Compels You, or anything like that. He just speaks to it as one who is superior to it and says, be quiet, come out of him. And the demon throws the man down before them and comes out without injuring them. And the people are amazed and say, what words of these? With authority and power, he gives order to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding areas. A battle which Jesus is not just a match to, he's utterly superior to. The funny thing is, well, it's not funny at all, the reality is the same battle that was going on in this man in the first century goes on in the lives of people in this room, in my life, and in people in our community all the time. We're just really blind to it. In Paul's letter, he says, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe, who don't put their faith in God. And time and time again, we are among those numbers, those who don't believe, who get the ice in our water and turn the heat down. And we can't see very clearly what's going on in the biggest reality, the spiritual realms. 
And what seems to happen, if I could borrow Mike for a spiritual uh, visual aid for a second. <laughs> uh, this might look slightly like a horror film. Um, um, uh, uh, I, I haven't actually prepped him for this, but my, um, uh, can you just pull your jumper slightly out? Front of bottom, yes, in front of bottom, front of bottom, there you go. Um, something gets inside our hearts and sort of gets a grip on them and starts uh, squeezing them. And sometimes, like in this passage, it's really obvious that most likely our little heart here just gets constrained little by little by an impure, ungodly spirit. And so it's not able to do the boom, 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 anymore. In some times in the world, when the demons have been doing their like that, it's been obvious that all you need to say is come out of him and be gone. But in other places of the world, like our modernistic and postmodern Western post-enlightenment world, it's more often than not been a hidden squeezing of our hearts as we bow our knees to materialism or to sex or to the God of me and give territory to what is evil rather than to what is good. And that's the battle we face. And by and large, it's largely hidden from our eyes. But when you see it is when you stand back and you look at the water of our lives and go, how did that get so cold? <laughs> Sometimes you can look at the bowl of water and go, it's... It's frozen right over. How did it go from the day when I was praising Jesus with all my heart, when I was born again into his family, born from above, when I was set free, when I said, I will do whatever you like, to a point where the water is so hard that if you throw a stone into it, it will bounce. Not because you've got the skill of a skimmer, but because it's solid as a rock. And the answer is you're in a spiritual battle and you hadn't realized. You hadn't realized. And every time you bowed the knee to what was not God, you turned the temperature down or you brought some ice in. And they say that all hell freezes over is a, is a phrase that we put off. Hell's trying to freeze over your life and mine. Make it spiritually cold to the point of deadness. And so, living in this community as we do, in our church as we do, with our own lives as we do, occasionally, as the curtains of heaven get pulled back, there's a sadness, isn't there? Especially if you've had a glimpse of what God can do. Because when you've had a glimpse of what God can do and then you sort of face up to the reality of day-to-day -day existence, the gap is ever so sad. And you sort of wonder, what can I do about this? How can I change this? How can I save my neighbor or the young person or the children? or those who are in rebellion against God in our own church family. 
Or even, how can I save myself? The beginning of this week, I went on a, a journey um, into the beautiful countryside near Banbury in Oxfordshire. And I stopped at the house of um, a retired vicar called David uh, McGuinness, who uh, had been vicar of St. Aldate's Oxford, where some barbers now uh, on the staff. And uh, around the table were a whole bunch of other people, famous Christians that uh, many of you would have heard of. And they'd all been part of a church in uh, what's known as the compost heap of Kent in the 1960s in Gillingham in the Medway Towns. If Kent is the Garden of England, the Medway Towns is the compost heap, they say. (laughs) And they'd moved there, uh, often from nice parts of London and other things, to see if what God had been doing at All Souls Langham Place, which was an extraordinary move of God in the 1950s under John Stott and John Collins' leadership, could be done again in a working-class community in a compost heap of, uh, of Kent. And they started serving God as best they knew, doing missions and winning people to the Lord and encouraging them to give their lives to Jesus. And two curates went to live in the vicarage alongside John Collins, the vicar, David Watson, who became a very well-known evangelist, and David McGuinness, who again became a very well-known church leader. They lived in the front rooms either side of the front door. Uh, they were also the parish rooms, uh, so that whenever there was an activity like creche or mother's union, these two bachelor curates had to vacate their rooms, uh, bring chairs in from the church hall 500 yards away, and set up for the creche or others to, uh, to take uh, control of what was going on. And, and, then, and then these two phenomenal curates moved on. Just before they moved on, a lady called Corrie ten Boom had come to visit, a Dutch lady who had survived one of the Nazi concentration camps. And she had had an amazing revelation of God, and some of you would have heard some of her story from our Alpha course about how she came to forgive. But her biggest story behind her ability to forgive was her ability to surrender her life wholly to God. And these lovely proper clergymen in the 1960s with their big round collars that went all round were blown away by this woman because they saw in her a tangible holiness, something possible, where they'd only previously seen mission, not sure if it's possible. Suddenly they saw mission possible. And they heard her speak, and one of the things she said was, don't wrestle, just nestle. Don't wrestle, just nestle. In other words, you don't have to just fight, fight, fight with God. How can you sort it out? Sometimes you just have to learn how to relax into God and enjoy him and be with him. And they they came away from this. The two Davids left and John was there. And he had this sense, there must be more than we've realized. And they were reading Romans 6 as we did last term where it says, I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. Sin doesn't hold me anymore. I'm not gripped by sin anymore. I'm free from sin. And they said, if this is in the scripture, it must be true. But I can't see the reality of it in my life. All I can see is moral failure and pain and hurt. And so they prayed, as were people doing all around the country. Nights of prayer, originated by a man called George Ingram at All Souls Langham Place, 
And one night, as it was this morning, it was snowing in January and then into February. And they gathered and they prayed through the night in the middle of a foot of snow in Gillingham. Thirty men through the night praying their hearts out. Nothing much happened, but at 2.30 in the morning, having stopped for tea or coffee, they began to repent. One of them repented of adultery. Others repented of other things. And then the Holy Spirit fell on the meeting. They said that three hours later, they had to kick people out because they didn't want to leave. And they had to persuade them to go to work because they wanted to stay in prayer. But the people who left the meeting looked 10 years younger than they did when they came in, despite having been up all, all night in prayer. Don't wrestle, just nestle. When the Spirit of the Lord comes, he sets people free from things that hold them captive. In this room today are people whose hearts are captive to evil forces. Not because we've done a great occultic sacrifice or anything weird, but just because we've said yes more in that direction than we have in the direction of Jesus. And do you know what the amazing thing is? It's very easy to be free of this because Jesus Christ sets us free. And do you know how you get free? It's very easy. You just repent of your sins and then ask that he fill you entirely and totally. One of the stories Corrie told was this very simple story. I'm going to finish with this story and then lead us into communion. She told the story of a man who had gone up in the world from very humble roots. Got a big house and a prestigious community. And he goes to his wife one day and he says to his wife, um, there's a, a lady who was dear to me when I was younger. <laughs> she, she was important to me. Would you mind if she came and stayed with us now? She's an old lady. Uh, she could go in the attic room. And his wife, who was a loving, accommodating person, said, yes, okay. And this lady came and lived with them. Rarely came downstairs, kept to herself, kept out of the way. The man was obviously a little embarrassed to have her around. <laughs> Uh, but she was settled. Then one day the wife went up to see the old lady and she came across something that made her realize the truth she hadn't yet known. This old lady was in fact her mother-in-law, her husband's mother. And she said to her, come on downstairs. You're part of the family. <laughs> You deserve a prized place in our community. This is your home. And Corrie said, many of us treat the Holy Spirit like that man treated his mother. What would it take to invite the Holy Spirit into every room of our house? so that she, so that he, had their way among us today. I can tell you what it would do. It would expel all the demons. It would bring a fresh broom. 
It would bring great freedom and great joy and great peace along with an incredible depth of forgiveness and security and love. 